Take a look at this picture up here. Have you ever seen anything like this? It's a beautiful spiral, isn't it? Or is it? How about these lines? Take a look at those lines. Are those long lines parallel or not? It's a little hard to tell, isn't it? Are they all the same distance apart? How, here, how about this one? I like this one. It's one of my favorites. Can you count the number of black dots on the image? <laughs> these are the, these pictures. All right, these pictures are something that are that are known as optical illusions. Right, they're images that appear to be one thing when they're actually something else. They're kind of designed to trick our eyes to, to make us uh, to make us seem like things are one way when they're not. Uh, this is actually not a spiral, though it might look like it. It's actually a series of circles, concentric circles. These lines are actually parallel. Maybe a little bit difficult to see that, but those lines are all parallel lines. And there are no black dots in that picture. There's nothing other than black squares and white lines. Okay. No one actually knows why that works. I did some research on that this week. No one knows why that particular uh, type of image works that way. It's just something to do with our eyes and our brain, but nobody really quite understands it. There's some theories out there but none of them quite have got it all figured out. It's interesting, though. You know, optical illusions are kind of fun. I've spent some time this week looking at optical illusions, uh, trying to find some good examples that would work uh, to show you this morning. And they are kind of interesting. I think we enjoy optical illusions. We know that they're just illusions. We know that they're, you know, they're designed this way. And there's a lot of other ones. We'll maybe have a few more later. But I do think that these reveal something about our human nature, right? We actually enjoy illusions. And sometimes we prefer illusions to reality. And if we look around at the world and how it works most of the time, I think what we see is actually an illusion. If we're not careful, we can begin to believe that the illusion is reality. And this is exactly what we find to be true when we come to Psalm 10. And so I'm going to invite you to take your Bible and open it to Psalm 10 this morning. Before we look into Psalm 10, though, would you just pray with me for a moment? So we ask the Lord to help us to understand the truth of his word. Heavenly Father, this morning I come to you acknowledging that I am all too often captivated by the illusions around me. I find it easy to believe the things that I really want to believe. And sometimes I find it very difficult to believe what you have said is true in your word find it very difficult to live that way, and I think that each one of us does. And so, Lord, we come today to your word, to this psalm, and we want to know what it says. We want to understand it. And, Lord, we want, we want the truth. We want to live with reality and what is real. I pray that you'd help us to see and understand the truth of Psalm 10 this morning. And then help us in our hearts and our minds to be aligned with the truth, to turn away from the 
illusions that are all around us. Instead, focus on you because you are ultimately what is true and what is real. Lord, I pray that you would do that work today because we certainly cannot do it. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Psalm 10, we're continuing today our series entitled Finding Purpose in the Psalms. We're finding out that the Psalms are more than just optimistic choruses, comforting thoughts. There's a lot more in the Psalms. They reflect the full-orbed truth of God as it applies in real life. That's what I like about the Psalms. They're very real. The psalmist was experiencing life. He experienced the highs, but he experienced the lows as well. And in all of those, all of those and everything in between, the psalmist declares the truth of God. And so as we learn and read the psalms, they give us godly wisdom to live in light of our future hope. We live in this world, but we look to the one that is to come. The book of Psalms has always been the songbook of God's people. And so it, it should continue to be a source of encouragement and help. Also a source of confrontation, a source of correction to us. The Psalms also speak to those who are not true believers. They warn them of judgment that is coming. And they point to the mercy and grace of God which is given to us through Jesus Christ. Psalm 10 does all of these things and more. Really, the simplest way for us to look at Psalm 10 is to divide it in two parts. I'd like to do that today. And we'll work our way through these two different parts. The first is found in verses 1 through 11, and it's very I've, I've labeled it this. This is the way things appear. The way things appear. But if we look at verses 12 through 18, we see the way things really are. I think that simple division is very effective when we come to Psalm 10. It's the way things appear versus the way things really are. And inside of this very basic outline, we're going to break things down a little bit further as we try to understand exactly what David was saying when he wrote Psalm 10. But before we get any further, I want, to, I want to just say that this psalm is about illusion versus reality. It forces us to ask and answer the question, are the things we see in the world around us really the way things are? Another question, maybe put a finer point on it, that we are faced is this. Should we base our faith in God on our observation of the world around us? You might be able to answer or, or guess the answer to one or both of those questions, but let me start by summarizing the main point of Psalm 10. Say it in a sentence. The success of sinners is only an illusion, but God's authority and justice are very real. The success of sinners is only an illusion, but God's authority and justice are very real. Whatever we see around us, we must believe God's word more than we believe our own eyes. That is very much 
the truth and a very important fact that we must take hold of this morning. Look with me there at Psalm 10 and verse 1. I'm going to read down through verse 11. You can just follow along here. The psalmist writes this, Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. He blesses the greedy and renounces the Lord. The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. His ways are always prospering. Your judgments are far above, out of his sight. As for all his enemies, he sneers at them. He has said in his heart, I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the secret places he murders the innocent. His eyes are secretly fixed on the helpless. He lies in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lies in wait to catch the poor. He catches the poor when he draws him into his net. So he crouches. He lies low that the helpless may fall by his strength. He has said in his heart, God has forgotten. He hides his face. He will never see. We begin Psalm 10 with the way things appear. And the first observation that David makes about that is that it looks like the Lord is hidden. Verses 1 and 2. There are two questions that he's prompted to ask God. He says there in verse 1, Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? And then he asks, Why do you hide in times of trouble? And this is the way that we feel many times. That when trouble comes, we're all alone. Instead of being near and coming to help us, God is sitting off to one side just watching. Maybe he's not even watching. Maybe he's not even aware of what we're going through at all. Have you ever felt that way? Of course, theologically, we know that that isn't how it works at all. And so if you asked us to, you know, write down the answer in Sunday school, we'd get it right. Of course not. God isn't far off and God isn't distracted. He knows what we're going through. But, but practically speaking, when we're in that moment of crisis, it sure feels like he's afar off, doesn't it? Many times. It feels like he just doesn't seem to know what's going on. It feels like we're all alone. then it's not just Christians who notice this, you know? It's not just Christians who are affected when things go bad and God doesn't seem to care. David mentions it there in verse 2. How the wicked respond when there is the apparent lack of concern from God. Verse 2, the wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. I think what David is saying here is that when God is distant, they're free to do as they please. You see, if you're the, if you're the suffering one, when God is distant, you, you feel like you're betrayed, or at least, at the very least, like you're just, you're kind of all alone and you've got to work through it on your own. But if you're the oppressor in that situation, 
then you're empowered. You're emboldened. The, the, the wicked here becomes even bolder in his pride, mocking the idea that God executes justice, living only for themselves and their own desires, mistreating the weak and the vulnerable. This is what's going on all around him. David here prays that the Lord would enact the law of nature with regard to sin. Did you know that there's a law of nature of sin? We don't think about it that way. You know, we think about the law of gravity. You throw something up in the air and it comes back down. We think about some other laws. Murphy's Law. <laughs> right? Now, but we think about laws of nature, but we don't think about the law of the nature of sin. You say, well, what is the law of the nature of sin? Well, it's simply this, that sin brings death and destruction to those who commit it. In verse 2, David is praying that this law will be enacted. He prays, let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. He's praying to God here about the wicked who are oppressing, who are taking advantage of others. And he says, let them be caught. Let them be trapped in their own device. Let their sin have its natural consequence in their life. This is the truth about what sin is and what it does. That's how sin works. It ensnares those who follow it. And this is just as much true of Christians as it is of non-Christians. The Apostle Paul warned about that in Romans 6 and verse 16. That if you choose to sin, you become a slave to your sin. David is just asking God to uphold the laws of nature. And you know, there's something interesting about the laws of nature. They operate and they work even if we ignore them and choose to disregard them, don't they? You can ignore the law of gravity and expect to be able to fly, but you do so at your own peril, right? Feel free to ignore the law of gravity all you want. You will pay for it. I have no doubt. By the same token, feel free to ignore the law of the nature of sin and you will pay for it. Of that you can be assured. And yet for some reason, we always tell ourselves that that law doesn't apply. Right? We don't walk around arguing about the law of gravity. We don't. We don't go around arguing about other processes of nature. Nobody goes around holding their breath and saying, I just don't believe oxygen is important. You know, I can live without it. We don't do those things. And yet, for some reason, when it comes to this issue of sin, we act as if that law doesn't apply. We can sin and there's no consequence. We can do what we want and there is no binding result. And yet, the scripture indicates otherwise. That we cannot ignore the enslaving nature of sin. When we sin, sin becomes our master.
It's a hard and fast rule. It's a law. You can say it's not true. You know? The famous words, I can quit any time I want. But you can't. Because sin enslaves. That is what sin does. When we choose to sin, we choose to become a slave to sin. But for whatever reason, we choose to ignore that law, thinking that we can do whatever we want to do and there will not be any consequences. Look at verses 3 and 4. This is exactly what the ungodly do. The, the, the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. He blesses the greedy and renounces the Lord. The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts, he says. This is the second thing that David observes about the way things appear. And it's this, that the wicked prosper. The wicked prosper. That's what it seems, that's what seems to be true. And David notes this. The ungodly man defies God in his heart and his mind. The ungodly man defies God in his heart and his mind. Verses 3 and 4 they, they contain two sets of parallel statements that help us to define, or that help to define each other. See, in verse 3, we see that his heart longs for wealth. He describes him here as greedy. He boasts of his heart's desire. What is it that he wants? His heart wants material gain. He wants wealth. That's what he focuses on. That's what he enjoys. And for the prospect of material gain... The ungodly man will turn his back on God. If the opportunity is there to increase his personal wealth, he will gladly renounce the Lord. There's no commitment to God at all. There's only a commitment to his heart's desire, which is material goods. Verse 4, we see that he thinks only of himself. This is evidence of his pride, that he will not seek after God. He doesn't think that he needs God. He will not even entertain thoughts about God. What David is describing here in verses 3 and 4, especially verse 4, is the mind of a scoffer. One who mocks the very idea that anyone exercises authority over him. This is a problem that we see problem that is bound in the heart of man, that we will not submit to an authority. We will be our own master. We will do as we please, and no one can tell us otherwise. And the ungodly man defies God. He doesn't think about God, doesn't even enter into his thoughts. He just pursues his own selfish desire. The interesting thing is, it seems to work. It seems to work. This ungodly man who pursues his own desire, who refuses to think about or consider God, it seems to work. 
You see, he, he's able, David says here, verse 1, God is hiding. God isn't doing anything. The wicked are prospering, and God isn't doing anything to stop it. And so this man who has determined to, to set his own path, who's determined to pursue his own heart's desire, God doesn't seem to oppose him. And so since God doesn't do anything when he sins, we find the unbeliever becomes confident in himself. He remains confident in himself. Look at verse 5. His ways are always prospering. Your judgments are far above, out of his sight. As for his, all his enemies, he sneers at them. He has said in his heart, I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. I think the first line of verse 5 really sets the tone for the rest of this paragraph. This man, the wicked one, he sees prosperity and success as the only possible outcome of his plans. He never considers that there might be a greater principle at work. What's the greater principle? It's the law of the nature of sin. That sin always brings with it the consequence of death and destruction. So this man determines that he is going to be successful. He's going to be successful in charting his own path. He's going to be successful in determining his own way. And it seems to work. He never imagines that God will do anything. He sees no way that things can go wrong. David describes him here in, in, in verse 5. He describes the judgments of God as being far off, far above, out of his sight. It's like, you know, he's so focused on the world around him, he never looks up and realizes that God's judgment is hanging over him. But he's so focused on this world, God's judgment doesn't seem to come down and intervene. And so therefore, hey, there is no judgment. Because what he sees around him seems to confirm that in his mind. There's no judgment of God. There's, God's judgment is so far off, you can't even see it from here. It's kind of the idea. And you all know what they say, I believe it when I see it. Right? This man, he doesn't even think of his own enemies. I think it's talking about earthly enemies here. The reason he doesn't think about his own enemies is that he is so confident in his own ability. He's so confident in his own uh, success. And he never dreams that it would be possible that anyone could stand in his way. A phenomenal example of this, a, a great example of this, is found in the book of Esther. In the person of Haman. Haman and Esther is so arrogant he is so self-assured. He knows that he is in the position of authority and power and influence. He has the ear of the king. And all through the book of Esther, you see Haman, as he's described there, just dripping with arrogance and self-confidence. Never dreaming that anyone could stand in his way and oppose him. And he never sees the hand of God in judgment. 
the interesting thing is in the book of Esther, God is not one time named in the entire book. And yet, the fingerprints of God and his providence are woven all throughout the book. Nothing that happened was outside of his control. So as much as Haman thought he could defy God, and no one could stand in his way, in the end, all he did was bring destruction on himself. And that is exactly what David is talking about here. You see, this man, verse 5, the, he doesn't see any prospect of failure. But, but verses 6 and 7, there's something interesting here. This man, this unbeliever, this wicked, ungodly person, he believes his own lies. He believes his own lies. This is the power of positive thinking. This man has told himself that he is in a secure position. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity. Nothing bad will ever happen to me. I've got it all figured out. You ever talk to somebody like that? Ever, ever talk to somebody? I know that I'm still pretty young, so I'm not trying to make it out to be any other way here. Okay, I understand. Most of you will correct me if I say, if I say this the wrong way. But, but most of the time when somebody says this and they talk like this, it's somebody who's young, right? Some kid, you know, fresh out of school, who's got it all figured out, you know? The rest of the world, the rest of their life... It's already mapped out. They know how they're going to find success. Everything is, is in their hand. They've got it in totally in control, right? And after you've lived a few years, you hear that, and you think, boy, you have no idea. Because everything that you think is going to happen, it's not going to be like that. It's just not. Because we are not in control, see? But this guy, he thinks he is. And so he speaks this way, but he believes it himself, okay? He believes his own lies here. His mouth is deceptive. That's what's really interesting. You know, verse 7, he describes his mouth here being full of cursing and deceit, oppression. This guy is dishonest, and yet for whatever reason, as dishonest as he is, he believes his own lies. He believes the words that come out of his mouth. At least when it applies to him. And yet, he's got a mouth that's full of deceit and dishonesty and oppression and corruption. He never considers that he might be lying to himself. This is so true. This is so true. We look around. We see men and women all around us who have told themselves, I've got everything under control. Nothing bad is going to happen. I've got it figured out. It's going to work. I've got a plan. They're lying to themselves. And they believe it. They buy into their own story here. And they never imagine, they never consider the possibility that they're lying to themselves. This incredible ability that we have as sinful human beings 
We can rationalize almost any conclusion simply because it's what we want to be true. In fact, I think that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, when he says that we as human beings suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is plain to us. You see, by default, as sinners, we tell lies about who God is and how his world works. And then we believe the very lies that we're telling. Because that's what we want to believe. We don't really want to believe that it is the way God says it is. We don't really want to believe that if we choose to sin, it becomes the slave of sin. We want to believe we can sin and control it. We want to believe that we can do what we want and still figure out a way to make it work. That's just not life. That's just not reality. David objects to that kind of thinking. But he also rejects, objects to more than that, rather. The actions of the wicked man just bear all this out. Look at verse 8 down through verse 11. This is the wicked man. He sits in the lurking places of the village. In secret places he murders the innocent. His eyes are secretly fixed on the helpless. He lies in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lies in wait to catch the poor. He catches the poor when he draws him into his net. He crouches, he lies low that the helpless may fall by his strength. He has said in his heart, God has forgotten. He hides his face. He will never see. Verses 8, 9, 10 contain a series of parallel phrases and ideas that come back. He's, he's really trying to, to paint this picture for us here. And each of these parallels paints a more detailed picture of the wickedness of the wicked man, of the unbeliever. He hides in secret places, places of ambush, waiting for his victim to come near. He murders the innocent. His eyes seek out the helpless. Now, I don't think David is necessarily speaking of actual violence here. He's not just talking about those who, act, who commit violence and murder, though certainly this would apply to them as well. He's speaking here of the wicked deeds. The actions of those who go, going back to verse 4, he says God is in none of his thoughts. This is what they act like. This is what the actions are. He compares them to these violent actions in a way to make them appear even more heinous. And what is the principle here? That, that because he is so self-confident and then never is checked. He's, 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 he's self-confident because everything seems to work. He finds success in everything that he does. God never seems to act or do anything. And therefore, this wicked man takes advantage of those who are weaker than him. You see, his desires are corrupt. His thinking is corrupt. And now his actions then follow that same path of corruption. The man who denies God in his thoughts, who boasts of his own abilities, this is the same one who will take advantage of others, take advantage of those who are weak, those who are vulnerable. He'll use them for his own personal gain. David describes him here like a murderer, a coward who lies in the darkness waiting for the opportunity to strike against those who are weaker than he is. 
And that's the description we get in verse 8. Somebody hiding in the shadows. A coward. Willing to take advantage of others who are weak. Then in verses 9 and 10, he, he uses a picture here of a lion waiting for an unfortunate animal to wander into danger. The targets here are defenseless. Notice how David describes them. He uses, he uses three different terms. He calls them innocent and helpless and poor. Of course, in ancient Israel, those who were poor and those who were helpless, primarily he's taught, would be, he'd be talking here about orphans and widows. Those who were without a husband or a father to protect them and provide for them. But it really applies more generally than that to anyone who is weak, anyone who is an easy target. Verse 11, I think, demonstrate very clearly to us that the wicked man's, he'll only attack when he thinks there's no danger of a return strike. He says there in verse 11, what he says in his heart, that God does not see, God has forgotten and since God doesn't see, there's no fear that he'll ever be forced to account for his actions. This man is the ultimate opportunist. He seeks his own good, but not through diligence and self-sacrifice. He seeks it through manipulation and deceit. Through surprise attack on others when they are an easy target. And through an inflated view of his own strength. This guy is a bully. But here's the truth. All of this is based on an inaccurate view of reality. The confidence that the wicked man possesses is completely unfounded. But he doesn't know it. He's self-deceived. He thinks that nothing will ever happen to him. He thinks that he is ultimately in control of his own destiny. The truth is that his actions are being recorded. And one day he will be called into account for his sinful thoughts and actions. That's what we find David declaring in the second part of this psalm. It's not the way things appear. It's the way things really are. Look at verse 12. David says this, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the humble. Why do the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, You will not require an account. Faith really wins out over fear. David testifies that the Lord sees and punishes sin. He prays to the Lord, asking God to act, to rise up, to defend the humble, to raise his hand and strike the wicked oppressor. Why does David do that? Well, he's confident that God knows the difference between the proud and the humble. Right? We don't wear signs. You don't wear signs that say I'm proud or I'm humble. Of course, if we did, then the humble would become proud and then we just, you know. We don't, nobody wears signs that say that. But God knows the hearts of men. This point is very important. God knows the hearts of men. David's counting on that. Verse 13, 
He points to the inner thoughts of the wicked man, the man who says in his heart. See, he doesn't say this out loud. He says it in his heart. That God will never hold him accountable for his actions. He believes that God is not paying attention. But David, David trusts God. He trusts that God knows not just what the wicked are doing, but why. He trusts that David knows the heart of men. He knows the hidden motives of the heart. Because look at what David says in verse 14. But you have seen. For you observe trouble and grief to repay it by your hand. The helpless commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. Think about that contrast. I love the contrast here between the last phrase of verse 13 and the first phrase of verse 14. Right? The last phrase of verse 13, you have the wicked man who's boasting in his heart that God will never require him to answer for what he's done. But the first line of verse 14, David says, You, Lord, you see. You observe these things. You watch and you know what is really taking place. This is based on, I think, David's confidence that God is the defender of the defenseless. He defends the defenseless. What I love about these verses is that it's God himself. It's God himself who acts, or that David is asking here for help. He doesn't pass the responsibility for justice off to somebody else. He doesn't ask an angel to do this. Verse 14, you have seen, you observe trouble and grief to repay it by your hand, Lord. David's confidence is that God himself will do justice. God, you're going to take it on yourself to make this right. David believes that. The helpless commits himself to God. I like what he says at the end of verse 14. You are the helper of the fatherless. Isn't it God who's promised to be the father of the fatherless? To be the protector of the widow? God is the one who has declared that he will be the defender of the defenseless. David is just claiming that promise. David is just, is just believing in who God has said he is. We come to verse 15 and we see what he says here. And, and, and it might seem a bit harsh at first. But you need to understand this is not human vengeance. You see, when we seek revenge, it's, it's cold. And it's not satisfying because it's not right. When, when we seek vengeance, we become just like our oppressors, don't we? But God is different. This is God applying the perfect punishment to fit the crime. See? This wicked man in verse 15, this evil man, is the same one who back in verses 8 through 11, used his own strength to oppress the weak. He's the one who hid and waited for someone to come by so he could attack them and take advantage of them. And here in verse 15, David is praying that God would take his own strength away 
to. Break his arms. In other words, take away his strength. He's using his supposed strength to, to abuse the poor, to abuse those who are weak. God, take it away from him. Make the punishment fit the crime. Break his arm. Okay. So this isn't some sort of malicious thing here on David's part. He's simply asking God to avenge the crimes that have been committed. Not only that, but he's asking God to keep going until he takes care of all of them. He says there, seek out his wickedness until you find none. Okay. The extent of God's judgment is complete so that every crime will be avenged. That's how thorough God's judgment is. So David here is holding on to this truth that the Lord sees and the Lord punishes sin. Okay. Something the wicked man, the ungodly, denies. Tells himself, God doesn't see. God won't punish. David says, no, God sees everything. He's recording it. He will repay it. And then David asks God to do it. There's another thing that David says here, though, and I want to get to this point here, very important last part in verses 16 through 18. He says this, that the king executes justice. I love this. He, he, he gives us a picture of God as the king. Verse 16, he says, The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations have perished out of his land. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their heart. You will cause your ear to hear. To do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, that the man of the earth may oppress no more. I think this image that David uses is especially appropriate. Think about it. In Israel, the king was supposed to look after the orphans and the widows. David is the king. So in a human earthly sphere, it's David's responsibility as the king to look after the orphans and widows. But who can do that better? The king of kings. The Lord of lords. The eternal king. Right? God. The ultimate king. And that's who David says here. He points to God as the king, the ultimate king who will pursue justice for all those who are oppressed. And I just really quickly want to point out three things here. Verse 16, he describes God here as the perfect ruler. You see, no earthly king, even if he is a good king, no earthly king can completely root out sin and injustice in the land. Can't be done. You know, even the most righteous and the most godly leader can't possibly root out all the sin and corruption in a land. It just can't be done. But God, God can and does destroy wickedness. That is his job. And he will execute his role perfectly. Because what David says there in verse 16, he is king forever and ever. The nations have perished out of his land. Nations there, that's the unbelievers. The pagan nations. God, you can do what no earthly king can do. You are the perfect ruler. More than that, in verse 17 we find this, that he will establish the humble he will establish the humble. He says, you've heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their heart. The word prepare there means to make it stand. 
to establish. God, you will hear the cry of the humble and you will establish their heart. By the way, that's the opposite of how things appeared in verse 6. What does the wicked man tell himself? I shall not be moved, he says. David says, no, 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 in contrast to that, God, you will establish the heart of the humble. Not the arrogant who who determines, I'm going to stand here and no one will move me. No, the one who humbles himself. His heart is established. And then in verse 18, he will put an end to the ungodly. He'll do justice to the fatherless, the oppressed. But then he says this, that the man of earth may oppress no more. I think that expression, man of earth, is intended to put us in our place. Kind of like the end of Psalm 9. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. Same thing is true here. Oh, these these men, these ungodly, are are arrogant and proud, thinking that they can defy the Lord with impunity. And David says, Lord, you come and do justice. Put an end to their oppression. They are nothing but men. They are just men of earth. God, you rule. You reign. You are the king, so you execute justice. That's what David is trusting in. That's David's confidence. Oh, there's a lot of more things I want to say about Psalm 10. And we just don't have time to even really scratch the surface this morning, it feels like. I do want you to consider a couple of thoughts, though, about how we can apply this psalm to ourselves today. The issue is illusions. Illusions. There are two illusions that I think David is pointing us to here. There's probably many more. And it's fruitful for us to consider the illusions in our own heart and our own life. The first illusion, though, that David points to is this, that God does not exist. Or if he does, he doesn't care about what goes on in this world or he can't do anything about it. This is essentially the illusion of atheism. Not what I would call philosophical atheism, but practical atheism. The practical atheist is a person who may claim to believe that God exists, but the way David says it in verse 4, God is in none of his thoughts. This is someone who lives his life on his own terms without considering what God desires, without considering God's plan. This is practical atheism. Peter Craigie in his commentary on the psalm says it this way. The functional atheist, as portrayed by the psalmist, is self-confident, desires only such things as power and happiness of a sort, that is, happiness without misfortune. Their goals are entirely self-centered, and in seeking to attain them, they don't hesitate to oppress and exploit their fellow human beings. Think about David's description in this psalm of the practical atheist. The man or woman who lives for himself, 
never considering what God really wants. Self-confident and self-centered in their thinking. Searching for influence and for happiness for themselves. And willing to do whatever is necessary to get what you want out of life. Does that describe you? This is a life based on an illusion. But if that's the illusion, we have to ask the question, what is reality? Well, this is pretty simple. This won't be earth-shattering. What is real? God is. You say, well, I'm going to live my life my way. No, you're not. You're not. You, you don't get to pick and choose what reality is. That's an illusion. The illusion is that you can live your life however you want. That is an illusion. You can't live as if... You, you can say God isn't real. You can say God doesn't see, God doesn't hear, He doesn't care, He doesn't know, He can't do anything. But God does care. He does see. The fact is, he has already acted in judgment. He has. God has already acted in judgment on behalf of every sinner. He sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for your sins so that instead of facing his judgment, you could be delivered. And Jesus rose from the dead so that you could have eternal life. If you believe the gospel and receive him as your Savior and your Lord, that is reality. The question there is, will you turn to him and be saved? But I think some of you, if you're honest in evaluating yourself, may see that your life looks an awful lot like that practical atheist that David describes. And yet you claim to be a Christian. Well, if those things that he describes are true of you, but you claim to be a Christian, how is that possible? I think the only explanation is this, that as a born-again child of God, you too can buy into the illusion. You can decide that you've got to work things out for yourself, that you've got to take care of your own problems, that you have to supply your own needs. And you can begin to live as if God either doesn't exist or doesn't care. That's living in illusion. That's not living in reality. That's living like an unbeliever. And if that's true of you today, you need to repent and begin to live by the truth that God is your defender. He causes the humble to stand, but he'll break the strength of the wicked. And so we need to choose to humble ourselves before the Lord. There's one more illusion. This one's a nice one. Those lines. Hard to tell if they're parallel or not. They are. There's one more illusion I want to just touch on here. Sometimes we choose this illusion instead of what is real. And it has to do with the answer for the man who is afflicted, the man who is suffering. The illusion when we suffer as a Christian, the illusion is that God will take away all of your trials all of your troubles that's an illusion
But if that's the illusion, then what is reality? Reality is this. It's found in verse 17. The Lord will establish your heart. I like that because David doesn't say that you have you, you can expect God to take away your problems. He doesn't say that you can expect God to fix and solve all of the troubles of your life. In fact, I think scripture gives us the opposite expectation. As Christians, we can expect our troubles to increase, not decrease. But what he does promise is this. His abundant and his overflowing grace that is sufficient to meet each and every trial. He will establish your heart. Will you choose the truth rather than the illusion? Will you allow God to establish your heart in the midst of your trials? Let's pray.